0: Welcome to Knock On Podcast, where we bring you archery information and education that you can trust. Knock On was created as a way to bring all archers together, regardless of the brand you choose or the style of archery you shoot. Knock On Podcasting will deliver professional insights to the latest gear, proper shooting technique, along with high-level equipment setup and tuning. It's Friday. Friday the 18th, which means we're one week away. That's my palms rubbing together right there. We're one week away from the opener in Alberta where all heck breaks loose. And it's funny, I made a post yesterday, um, it might have been two days ago, showing a bow that I had hunted with several years ago, the Hoyt Charger, which was a bow that came out in a very low price range and i just really wanted to use that as an opportunity to let people know it's really not about what you spend on your bows or your arrows or anything else it's really about the time that you put in behind those and you know really utilizing this this time right now to make sure you're practicing you don't want to be doing it like if you just started right now and season's next week that's not the good time to do it same thing with fitness uh, if you're going on an elk hunt and you're going to start five days or seven days beforehand, probably, well, six days before you have to actually leave to go, um, it's not the time. So preparation is the name of the game, uh, regardless of what you spend on your bow. And I had talked about that I used that Hoyt Charger and it worked really good. And uh, a lot of people appreciated the fact that I was being honest about the Hoyt Charger and um, still being a good bow, even though the price range was, you know, half of the price of like even my pro defiant. But I also told them that, uh, you know, this year I've been hunting with the pro defiant, which is the aluminum uh, version. Although I could shoot with, um, my carbon bow from last year. Um, I shot with the pro defiant all year and that was my plans. However, um, so If someone accidentally runs your bow over and it's not a carbon riser, (laughs) then it gets bent. And, um, I had an unfortunate event and my pro defiant is officially, um, bent like almost like a taco shell. So not that bad, but it, uh, yeah, it had an accident. Um, so I guess people don't always know when you like leave your bow laying next to a truck tire or something when you're uh practicing a walk away, but needless to say, yesterday um I had to do a an emergency bow build for myself, which was kind of interesting because one, I'm so busy right now I didn't have the time to do it, so I had to have James help me, and it's uh I'm going to have to break it to you the hard way, buddy, but Rogan had one of his 80-pound um, Carbon Defiant 34s here still, and I stole <laughs> parts off that bow. So I now have a Franken bow, and um, I'm going to be hunting with a Carbon Riser next week. Um, a Carbon Riser just so happened um, I was able to use my cams, uh, but I used my riser from last year, Joe's limbs from this year, and ended up with a really cool setup. I've got a a Pro Defiant um, that is coming in right at about 76 pounds, I believe, Um, because I went to the number three cam. I lost about four pounds versus he had number two cams on those limbs. Um, So I came in at like 76 pounds, and uh, it's flying great. The Arrows, those six millimeter axis that I'm shooting right now, uh, really liked that little bit extra weight too. So that's going to be my, um, my setup. So I guess, you know, it keeps you on your toes. That's part of being, that's part of being knowledgeable with your own gear is you really want to make sure that when emergencies happen, you're able to react and you're able to get through it. Um, but one thing I want to make sure I remember to talk about in this podcast is I just want to say thanks to everybody out there for participating in the Knock to Fork. Well, there's there's several things. I want to say thanks for a lot of things. But one of the things is for sure the participation in the Knock to Fork. And today, it is Friday, isn't it? I guess I need to look. Is today Friday? Let me see here. I'm not even sure. I thought it was Friday, but I'll be dang, might not be. But anyway, um, I did want to say thanks for everyone participating in the Knock to Fork because um, it had it is Friday. Okay, so it's been amazing the recipes and the plates that you've all put out. And what's really cool about it is, um, and if you if you kind of monitor. What I like, like when I like things on Instagram, you'll notice most of the time it's really early in the morning. Like I just spent almost, I guess almost an hour just trying to go through hashtags and go through things that you all tagged me on. And one of the things that is really cool is just seeing the progression of how all of you are starting to really grow and how well you cook, how clean you cook. Um, and just really utilizing animals that we harvest. Um, I think that this is like one of the most valid and important things that I've done is, you know, I'm really passionate and I'm really thankful that Traeger is supporting what I'm trying to do with Knock to Fork and really teach people and let people see Super clean ways to eat and ways to just utilize a grill. And, uh, you know, we've had some amazing recipes turned in, and we've had people that are just, even though there's not a contest right now, you're still doing it, and that is awesome. Um, So, last week, uh, the first week, we've had three weeks of contests, and each week they've given away a, a grill. This is the last week because season they told me they'd give away a free grill until season started, so my season starts next next Friday, so this is it. This is the big um weekend they're gonna give away i think i think it's a fifteen or sixteen hundred dollar grill package it's gonna be the biggest grill they make the the pro series thirty four um it's gonna be. An awesome package. You're going to get all the accessories, shelves, covers, pellets, sauces. Uh, You're going to get a knock-on emblem. It's going to be good. And well, Traeger's going to announce what the category is today at Traeger Outdoors. Um, But I'm going to go ahead and give all of you listeners and the people watching right now live on Instagram a heads up. So the category is Open Category. So this means anything. You can do pulled pork butts. You can do ribs. You can do steaks. You can do roasts. You can do grinder meat. You can do front quarters. You can do shanks. You can do wild game bacon. I don't know. Well, bacon's good no matter what, but that's going to be the category. This is the big one, and um, I just want to make sure everyone knows out there too, there was a, just like with anything, it never fails. You give something away, someone's got something to say about it. There was people that were complaining that the four runner ups that were picked, which actually, um, just so everyone else out there knows, I pick my favorite, um, which actually my favorite was a friend and I called him and said, dude you definitely would have won because Traeger actually picked him too. Um, but I said, I'm, I don't want to, you know, we'll work something out. I don't want to, I can't give away a grill to someone that's, that's this close to me. So, and they understood that. Um, but each one of Traeger picked someone, I picked someone, I had one of my cooking buddies pick someone and I let, um, the knock on crew pick someone And we had four people because it was too tough to decide. Then I left it up to all of you to pick who won, and we just counted the votes. And Traeger Daddy won. Um, And then there was people that were upset because he already had a Traeger. Um, And, you know, people were saying, well, it should go to someone who doesn't have one. Well, it needs to go to who wins. That's who it needs to go to. Um, and that's who it went to. Is who all of you voted for. And we're actually sending out some T-shirts and stuff to um, the runners up because they did an awesome job. Now this week, um, I'm going to do a little something extra. Uh, what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to I'm going to give away a dozen arrows to second place. A dozen of the six millimeter axis are going to go to whoever gets second because we are going to have to narrow it down once again and let people vote. But I can tell you that second place is going to be a dozen arrows, um, ready to rock. So that's going to be good. Third place. You're going to get something too. I'm sure I haven't figured out what it was yet, but I wanted to just say thanks to everyone, um, for participation in that. It's really important that we show the non hunting community, um, you know, why we're doing it. You know, we're doing it. Yeah. We're doing it for fun. We're definitely doing it for, you know, it's always fun to shoot something big. Um, but we also are able to put it to use and I'm like, I can see the bottom of my freezer right now, believe it or not. Um, I've just went on a cooking frenzy, literally cooking for friends, cooking for neighbors, cooking for anybody. I've just been like, On this mad spree We haven't been eating out as much Um, We are going to eat out tonight But we haven't been eating out as much Just really trying to clear out the freezer For this season coming up And that's what I hope all of you out there are doing as well Um, One thing I wanted to get into Was throughout looking at these pictures On Instagram And everyone tagging me I just wanted to say how um, awesome it is The pictures that a lot of you have Are super artistic, really creative Um, and there's been some people once again, who have said, Hey, can I send you a video and let, you know, and you critique my form. If you don't have decent shooting pictures in your Instagram feed or a video of you shooting in your Instagram feed, then I'm not going to be able to do it. But on the random case that I scroll across your comment and you're one of the ones that I want to pick, then it would be helpful for you because today there were three different people. I was going to look at their their Instagram page because they had made posts and give them my feedback, and I couldn't find any pictures. Uh, one of them, I wanted to see if I could find his. One of them uh, was really cool, and I'm, trying, I'm disappointed that I, oh, I think I know who it is. Uh, 406 underscore marine underscore veteran 406 marine veteran um, you wanted me to look at your form I looked at your page amazing pipes and amazing bourbon and you had some awesome stuff but guess what you didn't have pictures of you shooting so I wasn't able to take a look um, but there's a few that I'm going to talk about and because I'm on a podcast, you're going to have to go through and look at your own picture or someone else can go and look. But, um, so one of the first ones I want to talk about, there were a couple, one of the first ones is, um, there it's, uh, your, your handle is the, the Casa Moran. I assume that's how you spell it. But it's the C-A-S-A-M-A-R-R-O-N. And the picture is him out like in a desert uh, shooting range. And uh, it was a video actually. And he's pretty much said getting those reps in the last hour of the day. um, And there's a picture of you shooting. So what I wanted to talk to you about with that picture was if you... If you want my advice, which you actually never even asked for it, I just, you tagged me in a photo, so I saw your picture. Um, One of the things that you're doing is you have a very, very open stance. So the front foot is is back um, almost three quarters of, three quarters behind your front foot, possibly more. And what that does is it really opens up your torso to where, your your triangle, meaning if you look directly over the top of yourself, where your front arm comes to the center of your back and then your pulling arm comes across, that's your triangle. So when your triangle starts to open up too much because you have a very open stance like this, your triangle starts to become very sharp. And what happens is as you shoot, the rear triangle, because of the angle, as you shoot, your release hand will have to naturally come out a little bit away from the face. And that's going to give you some some right and left misses. Um, it also you know, it also kind of prevents you from having the leverage to be able to pull directly through your shot correctly. So if your stance is very open, As you come through, your elbow almost has to pull towards 11 o'clock. If you're looking back over your shoulder, your rear shoulder, it's more towards 11 o'clock because your stance is so open. Like I said, the triangle is pretty sharp. But as you open your stance and your chest opens up and your triangle flattens out, the rear elbow starts to come more towards 12 o'clock. So, that as you can pull, you have you actually have better leverage to come through your shot. So, my advice to you is try to close that stance just a little bit more than where you're at. You really want the toe of your front foot in line with the main ball of the rear foot, or your front toes should at least be even. Um, don't close the stance, but just try to close it more than than what you're doing right now. And you're going to have some better uh, left and right arrows. So the next video that I randomly looked at um, is from TLC Outdoors. Um, So TLC Outdoors, there's a video of him. And he's got a yellow bow and he's in his house shooting. uh, There's actually two videos that I watched. The first video is... Him shooting uh, to uh, Ray, uh, I think it's Le Montage, something like that. He's a good singer. I actually practiced to him a lot. Um, I practiced to Zone Out music very often. Um, so during that song, that video, um, the one thing I want you to work on, you're getting your reps in, but you're you're shooting a silverback. But when you're letting off the safety, um, it's going off extremely fast. And there's not a lot of effort really being put into the continual build of that shot until that shot breaks. Um, That's one thing. The other thing is what you really want to avoid doing is taking your head forward to the string. So as you draw back, if you... Start to kind of lurch your head forward to the string. What that does is it'll start to hyperextend your pretty much your ability to pull through that shot. If you stand proud, so if you stand up, you know, shoulders back, um, stand proud, deep breath, your chest cavities wide. When you come to full draw from that position. Keep your head perfectly straight and just pretend like it's it just only pivots right or left. Turn it towards the target and then pull that bow back until it stops. Stand proud, come to your anchor, don't take your head forward to the string. You know, bring the anchor to your face and then I want you to let off that safety and just continually and slowly build pressure and pull onto that release until it fires. You know, it's a lot like learning to accelerate a car without, you know, making people jolt in the passenger seat. That's, you know, one analogy that I use. It's awesome that you're blank bailing, but the thing is um, when you're blank bailing like this and you're not trying to aim, you still want to work on, being able to let off that safety and build, 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 build pressure until it fires. Um, so I think it's a little bit fast, and I don't like it. That one point, your head kind of stretches forward on your neck uh, and goes to the string. Try to keep your head on a swivel. Imagine there being, you know, a string right in the center of the ball of your hat going to the ceiling. Turn your head towards the target. Bring the string towards your or to your head till it stops, then bring it over to the face. When you go forward, a lot of times it does two things one, it changes the fit on your face, you're going to start to have more likelihood to creep and come forward. And the other thing, too, is it starts to once you do go forward, then when you bring your release hand forward to meet your face. The elbow now comes around to go forward to the face. And when that happens, instead of the elbow being high and having a good line in the back half of your body, when you're at full draw, the angle of your forearm, there's certain lines that I'm looking for. And when you go forward to the string, that line comes down and the elbow comes down. And then when that happens, you're your leverage to pull is now pulling down instead of that elbow being up enough to actually come through. So a lot of times when I'm working with students, um, you can see me a touch underneath their elbow, try to get this elbow up, uh, the rear elbow up. And the reason I'm doing that is because that changes the load being more on the lats and the bicep when the, when the elbow's low versus when I raise this up you immediately feel the weight transfer to the rhomboids in the back, which is where you want to activate and pull from. So that's uh, my advice to you. Uh, Next here, let's see. I've got one more picture I looked at. This is from, um, let's see. I don't know. It's I don't know how you, it's... uh, I think it's, well, it's Bo Montgoni Boys. B-O-M-O-N-T-G-O-N-Y-B-O-Y-S. Again, just a total random. He's shooting in his backyard. Um, He's got a blue shirt on, shooting in his backyard. And if you look up that picture... Uh, What you'll notice is uh, his release hand is really inverted. Um, So his release hand is almost completely vertical at full draw. Um, It's not bad, but there's one thing I want to mention about that is um, two angles that really start to change accuracy and change impact is both related to your hand. Both hands. Um, So the angles that I'm talking about specifically are the angles of the front thumb and the angles of the rear hand when you're in your anchored position. Ideally those two angles, the rear angle and the front angle should mirror one another. If you're if your rear hand starts to invert, then what happens is you start to put a lot of pressure on your D-loop. And if your D-loop happens to be short, then at that time what happens is um, you'll actually start to slightly bend the string to match the angle of the hand. So when people ask about how long should I make my D-loop, there's a couple things related to D loop length. And one is going to be, okay, if you're shooting a shorter axle axle bow, um, or if you're shooting a short brace height bow, or if you have a very long draw length, where the, tri- the triangle of your bow at full draw, so in other words, the triangle of the string, if that's very sharp, then that's going to have to come back a little bit further on the face before the string stops. Um, in order to fit your face properly and be right in, right under the tip of your nose, just past the corner of your mouth, and then obviously the arrow is sitting in the right place. So, if your string angle is sharp, and it and your and your string does naturally sit slightly behind the corner of your mouth at full draw, then in those cases you're going to probably shoot a shorter loop so that you can still maintain proper anchor position. Now. In saying that, what happens is if you start to shoot the way that you are here, where the rear hand is very inverted, um, then what you need to do is you need to slightly change the angle of that rear hand so that you're not so vertical. And you'll find that it's gonna, it's really gonna help your left and rights because I did a lot of testing with shooting machines um, just focusing on release angle. And um, what I found is once you start to change your angle from about 37 degrees and higher, the faster it starts to change your impact um, on the paper. So anywhere from your hand being flat until about that 36 degree mark, you can actually have variation and have variance in your percentage of angle but your accuracy will still remain where you need it to be but once you start to invert beyond a certain position then you again you start to twist that d loop a lot if your d loop short or depending on the type of material on your d loop that's why some people say well should i shoot a poly loop or should i shoot like the d loop so Um, or the D braid. So the D braid is a material that I actually, uh, designed with BCY years ago. Uh, funny enough, it was, uh, two top shooters wouldn't shoot it because it was called Dudley braid. Um, so they changed it to D braid and then the shooter, now people shoot it again, uh, shows you how fickle pros are, um, So anyway, the D braid is, it's a softer material. It's a little bit thinner and it has a lot more pliability to it. That was originally designed for when I shot my hinge releases. Um, When I shot hinge releases, I shot them with two fingers always. Um, When I shot the hinge because of my position and it did slightly twist the loop i wanted a slightly softer material and i found that on an actual hinge release that has a hook um i felt like it it actually seated better and the hinge pivoted better when the material was slightly smaller however once you go to a, a cocking release or like say a silverback um Having a little bit thicker material that fills the full gap of that jaw um, actually, I feel like, becomes more consistent. Um, but it is a little bit, you know, stiffer. So, in this case, if you're using that stiffer material and it's short and you're inverting, you're definitely going to be having not only left and right, but you can also change your high and low impact. So what I'd like to say is this, what I like about shooting two fingers um, and what I like about this release is it's going to allow you um, to really bring that angle down to about that 36 degree mark. So here's what I look for and part of the reason why I like a two finger release. When I draw back and I bring my index finger under my jawbone and my middle finger right above the jawbone, what I f- find is I won't feel the pressure of my ring finger or my pinky finger. Now, if I start to all of a sudden feel a third finger on my face, then I automatically know that I'm changing the angle of my attack on my release, so to speak. So, you know, if one time you pull back and all you feel is one finger, then it means you're really flat. The next time you feel two, the next time you feel three, the next time you can feel the pinky, you feel all four. Um, That's showing you how much that varies. So I would like it if you felt index the most, middle finger, uh, you know, probably two-thirds index, one-third middle. And if you want to slightly feel the ring finger, just a fuzz, then... um, then I think that would be good, but the front thumb should also be right at about the 40 degree mark or so. The rear, the front thumb, that position is critical because as the thumb starts to turn up like this, you'll actually start to apply pressure on the right side of your riser, so your bow's gonna wanna cant and you're gonna be the type of person who ends up needing a big stabilizer to offset it, or you're gonna end up always fighting your bubble so having the front thumb you know in that position same position as the rear hand as they come back together then those angles right there are super good so there's a a couple people just random i'll give you some advice uh, based off pictures that you stuck out there so hopefully that helps you guys out so Let's jump into some questions, some Q&As, um, and I guess uh, there's so many topics right now I want to podcast on, it, it kind of stinks because there's, um, I really want to get my buddy Preston on here. Uh, he's like geeked out right now with um, some of these innovations that we've been testing um, with some of the different um, deer Minerals and protein pellets that we've been doing and uh, actually came up with a pri- uh, propi- proprietary um, ingredient and formula with something that's really had some ridiculously cool uh, results with uh, deer not having uh, any of the biting type insects on them like ticks, um, crap like that. I mean, how nice is that going to be? Um, but then also I really want to get the, the problem is it's kind of like spearfishing time for my buddy, Scott. We keep trying, we keep missing one another. I really want to get him on here to talk about spearfishing because I'm kind of geeked out about it and it's relative to hex suits too. Um, I really need to, I've got so much documentation on hex. That I had been stockpiling for all these years, that I really want to get out to all of you out there now that I'm finally able to, like expose myself and actually bring it out from underneath my shirt. Um, but it's it's something that I'm really passionate about and think that uh, that it's a pretty big deal. And um, yeah, there's some other exciting stuff coming. There's definitely some uh, some cool products coming that i've been working on that are finally coming um out of the machines right now i've actually got one coming today that i'm super excited about it's going to be here next day air today and i'm gonna shoot it give it a few rounds and then uh if all is if all works the way i think it should then we'll be going into production with that which is going to be really really cool and then i also wanted to um I've been meaning to get some videos out just showing, um, some of the different things with the arrow rest, some things that I've, the arrow rest has been out. The elevate has been out long enough now to where a lot of people are setting them up, um, themselves at home, which is really cool. Um, there's so many of you out there that are doing your own setups. that's another thing I look through Instagram and I see how many people have like the knock on wrap pads and they're fletching their arrows for the first time themselves. Um, super awesome! You're gonna your archery is gonna go to a whole different level just because of the fact that you're able to start understanding some of this stuff yourself and working through some of this yourself. Uh, it's really really important. And with the elevate, there's a lot of you getting them and setting setting them up, but there's a few little things that you're doing that are not maximizing how that rest functions. Um, some people have broke blades because they're press- the pressure on the blade is being put too severely on the arrow shelf. Um, they're also not bringing the cage up to the proper position as well. Um, I've seen some people put them on, you know, attach the cord some pretty funky ways. So, Um, there's some pretty neat ways to do it. Um, like with Matthews, I've seen, um, several different ways been done on the Matthews limbs. Um, so I kind of want to share some of that at some point too. It's just, it comes down to time. Uh, so many things that I want to do and talk about and show you all. There's some really cool, like super inexpensive products from this hunting made easy company. Um, I started out just getting, like a camera stand from them. Then I got like this bow hanger that I put together in the backyard, um, which I haven't had a bow hanger at either one of my, uh, ranges ever. I've always just hung it on like my hot tub towel hook. (laughs) So, um, now that I have a rack, uh, it's, it's awesome. So at some point we got to get through all that, um, and do get some of these podcasts going. But um, I'm going to jump into some of these questions for, from you for right now, anyway. Um, this question is from A. White45, and he says, I'm struggling with the transition from the silverback to the Noctuit. Can you talk about the transition pressure to the trigger while maintaining the motion through the shot, like with the silverback? So that's one thing that really starts to take the mastery. Is learning setup, setup on the trigger. Um, a lot of people are finally starting to hold their releases correctly. Um, the releases are in great places on their hands. The hand positions are great. But what I've seen is a lot of people are kind of un. They don't really know where they need to put their thumb, like thumb position. Do I go forward? Do I wrap it around? Do I bend it back and then come back to the back of it? I mean, there's so many different ways people do it, but that's really, honestly, this is where um, a product like you know I've talked about it, and I was we were gonna do some knock-on versions, and and maybe we still can. I know that uh, Rob and Randy have been really busy with sales. Otherwise, hold on, I got to take a drink, people. The only problem with not having a guest is I can't ever wet my whistle with uh, without having to pause all of you out there. But So uh, the right release is a product that is more or less just a shot training device. It's a handle with an adjustable cord that'll let you adjust it to your draw length and you can just literally mimic making shots. And this is something that shouldn't be overlooked because it's so minimal, you know, the effort that it takes to do it. But what it teaches is this is where I always worked on preload and trigger setup was with a string. Um, My best year shooting, and I know you've heard me say it before, is the years where I would. I was on the phone a lot and most of my shooting was done with a string and what I learned was because I wasn't trying to aim, I wasn't trying to look through my peep, I wasn't doing any of that, you literally have two things. You have a handle and you have what you're doing with your release hand and Those two things are, you know, your hands, both of your hands are the first and the last thing to determine the path of the arrow. Front bow hand, obviously, is the first thing that contacts the riser, and it's the last thing contacting the bow at all as it propels forward, and obviously the release hand is the first thing to determine the path of the string as it leaves the release, so both of your hands are critical. So a simple little trainer that allows you to have the right grip, come to your full draw, and then ha- be able to let you move your thumb around and find that place to where you're consistent with, you know, your hand position your thumb position to the trigger. You can find that consistency, and you're not worried about the bow taken away from you. You're not worried about, you know, not aiming right. You're not, you don't have any, ex- like, Aiming anxiety, things like that. You're just able to really get your finger on the trigger and see if, like, see if it's in the right spot, and then also put enough pressure on there to where, as you start to pull that elbow back in that same motion as what you would do with the silverback, that the shot breaks and it fires. And then, when you learn that, which is honestly when I'm teaching people how to shoot their trigger release after they've overcome target panic, I don't do it with their bow. Go right to the string and just say, okay, come to your anchor, let me move your thumb. So I kind of move their thumb, I put their thumb in the position that I want, and I'll say, okay, apply a little bit of pressure, and all I'm looking for is when they apply enough pressure to where it starts to actually roll a little bit of skin to the front of the release, and it starts to whiten the skin, then I know that they have just a little bit of preload on that trigger, and once they have that, then you're able to activate that release with the same pulling motion as what you do with the Silverback. Um, I'm not sure right now, but the Silver, we might be, I don't know if we're, I think we may be out of Silverbacks. Yeah, actually I know we are. We're out of Silverbacks. I think we may be out of Minis now too. There's a few Noctuits left, not many when those are gone, uh when those are gone, it may be more like rut before we see any new ones because um yeah, Carter pretty much told me, listen, we're gonna do this we we're gonna get these to you before hunting season starts, but we really have to make our own releases now, <laughs> so <laughs> there we're it's going to be a little bit before we see It's again. Um, the other thing I wanted to say was, uh, you know, the silverback and the mini silverback have gotten a lot of uh, a lot of attention. Um, actually, I've heard from several people that silverback's been mentioned on a couple different podcasts out on the market right now, which is, I appreciate very much. Um, I wish I had more time because I've been asked to do podcasts with different people and, uh, and I haven't, um, I do know, I, I do want to do one with, uh, the Gritty Bowman at some point. Um, so if our schedules ever connect and those guys reach out, then I'd like to make that happen. But, um, and that way we can talk about, you know, silverbacks and shot process, but, that right release is something that you should definitely check out. You can find it on Instagram. Um, or Rob from Rattler Grips is actually who makes that. And Rob and my buddy Randy Peck, who makes the True Shot Coach, uh, which is another really cool little thing that just slips over your finger, goes on your bow hand, and it just—it's a small little pad that puts pressure in the right part of your hand and allows you. It teaches you proper grip position but it's super inexpensive both of these products aren't expensive but they're just really really good training tools because so much of having a good shot uh, just comes from technique not so much repetition with the actual bow it's technique and working on these fine details makes a big 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 difference uh, for sure so uh, hopefully that helped you out appreciate you Following and asking the question. So uh, next question here is from uh, Bowfish for Life seventy one, and it's another silverback question. These are random, so I'm just pulling all these off um, different posts, um, mainly just taking screenshots. Um, so these, both of these, were side by side, and he's saying um, shooting the silverback. Um, I start sh- when I first start shooting, I'm hitting to the right um, the longer that I shoot, everything comes back to the center. Um, I shot the IBA fall festival this past weekend, all three days. And I struggled early, uh, with my shots always hitting to the right. So once again, this is something that's really important. Um, this actually goes back to, um, when I was, when I had, um, Bailey here, a lot of you follow Instagram, know Bailey because she's a good shooter and um, she does a really good job with social media posts, she's quite funny, and um, when she came one of the things that I worked on with uh, my students that were here and part of the reason why I had Bailey come here was because I really wanted, um, I was trying to prepare Lucy, for her World Cup event coming up, which um, they won, they won silver last weekend uh, at the World Cup, and Bailey, uh, I knew I'd been wanting to work with for a while. Uh, when she came, I really wanted her to be able to do some head-to-heads with Lucy, and so that I could work on a few things with Lucy. But I also thought I'd be able to maybe help Bailey with some things as well um I had never seen her shoot so I was just assuming that. I don't want to say that I was spotting problems because I wasn't, but um one thing that I try to identify is how archers respond to waking up and being able to make shots happen right away versus archers trying to make shots happen uh once they're warmed up because there is a difference. Um one of my buddies is the master at literally take you know he shoots for like 2 hours at a time but it takes him like about the time i'm wore out is when he's starting to actually make good shots and um and the longer he shoots the better he shoots he just like you know it's like he's like he starts to relax enough to where he gets shoots better and better and better and better and then I'm like way past long overdue. I'm shot out, like just struggling to, to get my bow pulled back. And he that's when he's making his best shots. Um, so I think from a hunting practicality and especially a tournament archer's point of view, you got to be able to come out of the gate shooting in the middle. I mean, sometimes you only get one arrow and it might be 10 minutes after legal shooting light. So... You don't want to have to have 10 shots before you're hitting the middle. So how do I do that? Well, the focus has to be, and this is one thing that I really like about the silverback, is the focus has to be on the dynamic pull through the shot and coming through the shot. A lot of times what happens, and actually TLC Outdoors This is one of the things that I'm worried about with you when I talked earlier in the podcast about when he lets off the safety and he starts to pull, the shot breaks. What happens is when you're not really trying to come through dynamically to where when the shot breaks, the release hand comes back over the top of the shoulder, if you're letting off and you're barely pulling and the release is just firing right here, just down and away, down and away, and the release hand isn't really breaking and coming through, then as soon as the you let off the safety and you kind of come out or down with the face, the string comes out and through, and you start to send your arrows um, in that direction. So if you're coming out away from the face um, instead of through the shot, then that's gonna happen. Uh, The other thing too is, you know, sometimes people get into their string a little bit tighter um, and then as they wear down, they start to, you know, become a little bit more lax on their facial pressure and things. Um, Without seeing you shoot, I can't really answer those questions, but I just know that when you go out there, uh, a couple things, if you're at a tournament You recognizing that is really, really important because it's going to allow you to identify, okay, hey, it takes me a little while to wake up, so I'm going to do something to wake myself up. Maybe you need to go out and do a a one-mile jog, get to the tournament, and make sure you just start out with 20 shots, blank bail, get up close, and just really focus on pulling through. And when you're able to sit there and make five or six good shots where your shots are breaking consistently um, at about the same time, for example, you let off the safety and you're one one thousand two one thousand 1000 1000 4 1, 000, bam, the shot's breaking. And then also the next shot, you're like one one thousand two 2 and then it breaks. Then the next shot's 10 seconds. Obviously, those are the types of timings That are gonna cause you variation and impact, but once you're able to consistently like one, one thousand, two, one thousand, three, one thousand, four, and it breaks, and you're always within that one or two seconds of those shots breaking, then you're pretty much telling yourself, "I'm ready to go shoot now." And I, with Bailey, she came and um, in the morning I got them up nice and early, took them outside. You know, Lucy had probably already been up a few hours because she was still on UK time, so she was ready to go. And when I put the two kind of head to head, shooting against one another, uh, Bailey just derailed. And you know, I just told her, I said, "Hey, if this would have been a tournament, you're done. You're going home. You know, you might have been you might have been the favorite to a lot of people, but you know, you're packing your crap because you weren't ready." and she said yeah she's like I, I i feel like i'm just now starting to like shot's break right and i just said yeah and i said you need to you need to recognize that as you compete because if you're the type of person that um which i've got friends like my buddy Dave step that dude you can wake him up and he can just get out of bed and launch a 100 yard shot um but sometimes people have to, like, rub the grit out of their eyes for a while and wake up and move around, and, you know, it's just, it's different. Sharon's like that. I can hear her upstairs right now um, rummaging around, and, you know, she's she's like a, a bear coming out of a den after, the, after it's been in hibernation. It takes her a little while to get coffee in her, get going, get woke up, Whereas, you know, when I wake up, the longer my day goes, actually, the more like the more I feel like relaxing. So if I'm less likely to work out every hour of the day that goes by, Um, if I get up and I if I get up, I hit the hot tub, I shoot some arrows and go right to the gym. Like for me, that's perfect. I'm awake right then. And maybe it's easier for me to to have those first arrows be in the middle because that is my routine. I'm used to getting up early. I'm used to just kicking it in gear and going. And the same's true at camp. You know, I've, I've hunted with people to where in the morning you can, you just, you don't even want to talk to them till about 10 in the morning. Cause they're just, they're like in their little, they don't want to be out of bed. Um, whereas I'm kind of sitting there with my eyes awake, like tapping, Like, when when can we go? Um, But at night, when everyone comes back to camp and everyone's kind of changing clothes and coming out and wanting to have some drinks, I mean, I'm usually sitting there with my eyes barely open, just struggling to walk around. And a lot of times I just soon pass up dinner so I can go lay down and go back to sleep. But I'm an early bird so you got to recognize that with your shooting too. If you're not an early bird then get there and give yourself time to wake up and get those shots going and uh you're going to be way further ahead, believe me. And you'll be able to do good at the tournaments and you'll be able to uh well, you'll be able to do good in the in the timber too. Um let's see here. Next question is from uh mat 302 uh matt dick 302 uh i watched you shoot your target bow accurately um, at longer distance on a recent youtube video i don't think you shot your hunting bow but i did see it there what sort of accuracy should i expect at longer distance on a hunting bow with a much smaller setup uh, stabilizer setup. So honestly, um I you know it's the only real difference between the two bows for me doesn't really come from what the stabilizers do for me. The main difference and actually this is um so I was going through I was going through several uh things here in this room that I'm in right now, it's kind of, it's my office. There's a lot of like memorabilia in here and I've got this cabinet to my left that's got, it was just stacked like three feet high with just pictures and scorecards, um, and stuff from tournaments. And I remember I found one, uh, and I sent it to my, to my buddy Ryan Bronco and he was like, why are you shooting that 12 inch stabilizer? because it was it was on a bow that I had um had a really good year with, and I told him I said, "Well, back then the i b o didn't allow you to shoot longer than a twelve inch stabilizer. it wasn't like open yet, you know twelve inches is the max you could shoot from the riser to the end of whatever stabilizer you had, and that would include you know if you had a one inch thick v bar bracket that meant you could only have eleven inches on the front of the bow, so you know i told them well that's all we could shoot and back then i had some amazing setups that shot really good and with my hunting bows i really feel like i'm just as accurate or they are just as accurate um, as a setup as my hunt my target bows uh, the difference is the magnification it's more so in the sights than the stabilizers because I really feel like I could shoot, um, if I weighted it correctly, I felt, I feel like I could shoot a 12 inch stabilizer on my target bow and it would be just as accurate for me because I actually shot with 12 inch stabilizers in the pro class many times. Um, but what I don't like about it is I'm not able to set it down. I have to hold it the whole time, you know, unless I put it in a holder on my leg, but I'm constantly holding it. I can't tip it down. And rest my front arm. That's the main difference for me. Is with my target bow, I like to rest that front shoulder because I'm carrying that bow for an entire day on the field. Um, with my hunting bow, I feel like it's just as accurate. The only difference is I'm shooting fixed pins. I'm shooting a much bigger peep sight. So because the peep sight is larger, obviously your groups are going to be larger too. Because you know you're not like micro analyzing your your scope and your peep um alignment. So uh you know it'd, it'd be a lot like if you had um if you can imagine a rifle and I may use this analogy when uh when Andy was here last week, but I remember talking to him, he was asking me something about like peep sights or something and the importance and I said, "Okay, well um actually we were talking about sight length. We were talking about like how people some people just put their sights as far out in front of their bow as they can because they think it looks cool and i kind of told them i said um you know if you if you bring that sight um closer in you know you for me the accuracy tends to get a little bit better um mainly because of the position of the rest but i did tell him too i said you know, if you didn't have a rear peep, like imagine not having a rear peep sight on a, on a long rifle, uh, it would make it really difficult to, or, you know, for any gun for that matter, make it really difficult to be accurate with it because then you're not able to actually align the front and rear part of the, bar- you know, the barrel. So even if you thought the front of the barrel was pointing on something, if you weren't aligned down the back of the barrel right, uh, it would change it. So what uh, what we did was uh, you know for peep for peep size, I moved his sight to a position that allowed his peep to perfectly eclipse his scope, so that he could perfectly see the just barely the eclipse of the perimeter of the scope. That way, if his peep was a little low one time, he would notice. If it was a little high one time, he would notice a little left, a little right. Um, so. With the hunting bow, because your peep is bigger and your scope is bigger, then that's really the main reason why I shoot um, a little bit bigger groups with my hunting bow. Now, if I put a small peep, which I have done, there's been times where um, I'm hunting in a situation where I can use a single pin, and I know just based on the terrain, I'm not going to be shooting in like low light conditions, which is very common with whitetail hunting. Um, so a lot of my buddies too, that are Western hunters, they shoot a slightly smaller peep than I do for hunting here in the Midwest. Um, just because they're, they're more open country, uh, type hunting. So they're able to shoot a single pin where they have time to adjust it. They shoot a slightly smaller peep. And like with those setups, I'm just as accurate. But once again, if I start to shoot a bigger peep, bigger scope housing, no magnification, A bigger pin like an actual you know the fiber optic pin is a lot bigger on my hunting bow because i'm really just trying to cover the kill um or cover the heart you know as i'm aiming i'm not really um focusing on holding my pin right in the center of an x so it's a little bit different um but i think the two ideally the accuracy between the two should be the same Um, the difference is just going to be your ability to actually look through it and point it as accurate, you know, and I just don't think that you can be as accurate that way just because you're not able to have the object magnified. You're not able to to really pinpoint how where your pin's holding. And like I said, it's harder to align the peep the bigger the peep is. You have room to play around. Whereas if you're shooting a little 29 millimeter lens um, with a, a micro peep, uh, you know, if you move your head or if you change your left and right or up and down at all, all of a sudden now your scope image is being cut in half. So that's really the difference. Accuracy wise, if you put them in a shooting machine, they should both, uh, they should really shoot the same. Uh, next question here. I'm, I'm, I'm getting hungry, people. It's been an hour. I've got to open this bar up. I'm opening this. Hopefully it doesn't stick my, my mouth together as I'm, I'm going to eat and podcast. Um, what is the block game you were talking about putting on your new website? This is a question from Daniel underscore McKenzie 79. So the block game is a practice round that... My plan with with the new website, um, and yeah, I'm not going to talk about when it's coming out because who knows, but the plan is that you're going to be able to have um, biweekly challenges by me, and I'll give you a round to shoot, and then I will shoot the round and post my score so that you have a bar to what you want to, you know, to try to beat that score because I'm not, I'm you know I don't shoot perfect practice. Um, I try for perfect practice, but you know I do miss, and you know depending on the conditions I may miss more times than others. Um, there's times where I don't like actually in the I did a live feed with Andy uh, in the backyard, and. I used the wrong pin on the mountain line. We were talking about gapping pins, and I actually gapped with the wrong two pins and airballed one um which is pretty common. I either miss the whole target or I hit the middle <laughs> like that's my problem. I either misset my sight and completely miss or I put it in the middle so i don't I would almost like the in between but anyway um. The block challenge was pretty much a, a round where I think I shot I think I shot four arrows at a time and I shot each side of that block um at a different distance. So I shot the small dots at uh twenty, then at thirty I shot the the next bigger dots, the four dots. Um, then when I went to 40, uh, we shot at just the kill zone on the animal silhouette part. Then we went to 50 and 60 and shot at the big dot. Um, and then did that for, I think if three rounds or something, and then pretty much you just tally, you know, it's hit or miss. You're either, you either hit the dot or you miss the dot. That's all it is. And, uh, that's what the block challenge is. There'll be there'll be different ones. We'll have different targets. There may be days where I say, okay, let's shoot a Vegas round. Um, let's shoot a Vegas round at 30 yards, or okay, we're gonna shoot. You know, get a 3D target. Here's what the, the size of your kill zone. You know, we're gonna shoot 100 arrows at 40 yards. Different things like that. They're just different challenges that I give myself. And uh, once those happen. I want to be able to let you all compete against me. Um, let's see here. RJ Clockmaker says, um, "I want to hear why you switched back to a thumb trigger after spending years getting over target panic." So, I guess with that one, um, that's kind of a it's kind of a tricky question, to be honest with you. Um, because the reality is, even though, even though I shot really well with the hinge, uh, and even though I can't complain about having any problems, I didn't have any anxiety. I didn't have any anticipation. I didn't have any, um, I don't know. I didn't have I really didn't have any issues at all um, with the hinge. It was accurate. I liked it. Um, but the thing that I didn't like was I had to shoot mine pretty hot. Um, they were always kind of just ready to go. So I had to shoot the hinge a little bit hot because of the way I shoot it. And the way that I do shoot it is, um, you know, I like to draw back all the pressure on the thumb and index finger. Obviously, you have to. Um, Otherwise, if you you don't, you're going to fire it, right? So at that point, I would anchor the same as I do now, tuck that index finger under the jaw, feel a little bit of middle finger over the top of the jawline, and then I would start to, as I'm building and maintaining pressure against the wall, I would slowly start to relax the index finger and allow the hinge to pivot around the middle finger until it fired. Um, So it just got to the point where from a hunting situation, it was getting difficult um, to have to always reach in my pocket and pull the release out. Like I like to be able to have, um, and then I would have to flip it, load the hook underneath, um, that sort of thing. So, you know, I didn't, I didn't necessarily like, um, hunting with a hinge release. I really wanted to get back to a thumb button release. So, but you know, once again, if you're not able to shoot the thumb button without punching it, then I didn't want to shoot it for anything. So, um, I just really wanted to, to overcome it. I think, I think learning, Getting to the point where I can pick up any release. Um and you know, I've picked up some people's hinge releases while I'm working while I'm doing a clinic. And I'll say, okay, let me shoot your bow and I'll grab their bow and it may be too short or whatever, and I've got their hinge. And because they're used to like putting their hand in such a different position than mine at full draw, there's times where I mean I'm like waiting feels like a minute for that release to rotate enough as I'm relaxing and pulling until it finally fires. And I don't feel any type of anxiety or panic or rush. You know, I'll get to the point where I'm not holding steady because I'm out of oxygen. I'm kind of bouncing all around. I won't shoot very good with it, but I'm not afraid of it. And I think if you can get to that point, you're, you've you made a pretty important Uh, jump in your life. I think you've got to a point where you're truly mastering archery when you can utilize any release aid and get the same result. So that's really why I made this switch um, or wanted to switch from a hinge over to my thumb button was just to be able to hunt with it, keep it on my string all the time. Um, And I really feel like it was a step. Now I can shoot. Um, I can shoot a wrist strap release normally for a few weeks, and then I'll start to. I'm not going to say I start to get target panic, or I start to. I just get to the point where I feel like my shot timing changes. I feel like I'm not like consistent with, with preload and coming through. And, uh, I just feel like after a short period of time, I want to go back to, I'm, I want to go back to a place where I, you know, where I definitely don't want to go to. So I just avoid that altogether. You know, I don't, um, you know, even though I, str- I was never able to shoot a trigger release and then had to shoot a hinge in order to get away from target panic and learn, proper shooting technique, it didn't mean I wanted to like rush back to the wrist strap. Um, I was really comfortable shooting with what I enjoyed. And actually I shoot a, um, I do still shoot a hinge a lot now. I do. I really do. Um, I've got one, there's a hinge in my release pouch all the time. Um, I'll shoot a hinge. I'll shoot the problem with the hinge The problem with the hinges that are out there are the difference, the length difference between the heads. So a lot of times they feel so different, um, the position between your index finger and the head of that where the hook is, that you're not really able to shoot multiple releases. And ideally that's what I would want was something that you could just transition back and forth to without having to really make much of a change. Um, But... I do still feel like they have a very valid place in archery. Um, Some people will learn and shoot. Some people will be more comfortable shooting a hinge in a tournament than they will um, a silverback. Um, The people that don't feel that way are the ones that achieve more because obviously there's a block there. They're wanting control, and that's an important barrier that you have to be willing to to get over is saying okay well I, you know I really don't have control I'm just going to come out here and I'm going to I'm going to strive for execution of what I classify as a good shot that's what I want I want to just execute I want to have you know good shots as they break. I'm not worried about exactly where they land all the time. I'm not. I'm not going to put a lot of pressure on myself from like what is my performance when it comes to like how well did I actually shoot. So um, I feel like if you get over that, you're at a very, very, very valid position in archery, and you're gonna you're gonna make big progress from it. But um, I can't say I can't say that people need attention over a hinge. I can't say people need the trigger over either one of the other two. Some people do better with. That's why we have all of them. Some people some people do better with a wrist strap and punching it because they almost feel so much anticipation by trying to like not have control that it almost makes it worse for them. They almost have more target panic was something that prevents it than if they were to just sit there and punch the trigger. But once they get to the point where they can't hold their pin on the tr- on the target anymore, then they're at the point where they're like, okay, now I have to do something. But there is a small window where people can actually hold their pin on the target and punch the trigger. Those people are deadly to shoot against. but um, And they're often the ones that bump top level guys off the podium just you know they're the ones that just are like where did they come from but uh they're usually not around that long and their struggles they get real so i'm i just try to avoid all that um so next question here is from js studios asking what exactly does your front hand do before and after the arrow is released well, the front hand should always be relaxed. When, when I teach people and I have them at full draw, what I try to tell them to do is relax the bow arm from the front bicep forward. So, you know, I'll tell them, okay, relax it, relax it. And you can see that the tension in the front of your hand, so in other words, on the knuckle side of your hand, You can see that that tension in your ligaments there and your tendons, once you do relax, that goes away. But if you're tense, you can see the tension through there. And again, what I believe with archery is the more you rely on muscle, the more opportunity that there is for muscle to fatigue and feel different from day to day, utilizing skeletal structure and anatomy is way more repetitive because it's going to do the same thing all the time um so i like the pressure on the front hand um, of the bow to pretty much connect through at the base of the thumb where it comes through the wrist which goes to the elbow goes to the front shoulder Um, that position there is what's supporting the bow the front hand is relaxed where there's no tension through the back of the hand and the you know that's why I don't like to see the the when the fingers are straight out and forward then you're using muscle to do that or if you're like curling around and touching the front of the bow you're obviously adding tension that way too so I like the from the bicep forward to be completely relaxed and when it's in that position if you have, you know, slow motion and you shoot, what you'll find is as the release breaks and the bow starts to, literally the bow is collapsing on itself. Strings coming forward, strings coming to the riser, risers coming to the string. They're literally trying to collapse, but the front hand prevents the full collapse. The front hand allows the bow to press on the front hand and because of that action, there's gonna be an equal and opposite reaction which is then the bow projecting forward. And depending on your bow's design, that's really gonna determine what the front bow hand does. If your bow is designed with a slightly shorter riser and with longer limbs, or if your bow is designed with limbs that aren't like parallel or beyond parallel, where they're actually arced, then, which in those cases, if they are parallel or if they're arced, what happens is when it shoots, the limbs thrust up and down. Instead of thrusting forward, they thrust up and down. So the bow doesn't really go anywhere. Now back in the day, when we shot, you know, you go back to, um, when we shot risers that were like 20 inches long and then you had these big 15, 16-inch limbs, the angle of the limb was fairly steep, fairly vertical. So when that got pulled and shot forward, shot, it projected forward, the bow would launch forward, which is kind of why we all started wearing wrist slings at one time to just hold the bow from going too far forward but when the limbs start to become parallel or beyond parallel as you shoot the vibration cancels itself out up and down so the bow doesn't go that far so if you watch me shoot my target bow um, so if you watch some of the videos and i know i've got videos on my instagram if you watch some of the videos of me shooting my prevail it has longer limbs and it does project forward more so on that bow When I shoot, you see there's actually more hyperextension on the front arm and the front hand maybe thrusts forward a little bit further um, because that's the direction the bow is taking that versus with my hunting bow, when I shoot, it almost just, you know, it almost just stays right where it's at. It doesn't project forward. So the front bow hand should really react natural to what the bow is doing. Um, but it does need to be relaxed. Uh, let's see, we got a question here for, from, let's see, looks like rhinus or renus the hunter. Um, what is the purpose of arrow wraps and why I use them? So what I like about arrow wraps is they allow you to, to just protect the shaft, um, from, Scraping off veins or excess glue as you refletch, um, you really save the integrity of that arrow. This is more important on carbon uh, than it is on aluminum. But in saying that, with aluminum arrows, part of the problem is um, a lot of materials. Gluing materials don't really stick to aluminum well. They end up like just kind of creating like a little shell. They pop off and break off in a shell, and your vein's off. So, cleaning the aluminum shafts and scoring them a little bit with like a scotch pad or something, um, even though it does work, it's kind of more of a pain, and there's always that thought in the back of your head of, Am I going to lose a vein? Um, So, The vinyl cresting, or the wraps, it actually allows the glue to cure a little bit better, and the adhesion is always much better on vinyl. Um, I shouldn't say much better, but the adhesion on vinyl is great, whereas some types of aluminums um, or some types of slick arrows, the adhesion is a little bit more tricky. So by using a wrap, you're able to clean the vein Make sure that the wrap's clean, depending on how much you've touched it with oily hands. And, you know, put a put a vein on there and literally, you know, depending on the type of glue, if you're using like Max Bond, you may only need to put it on there for about 20, 30 seconds and then you can remove it and go on to the next vein. But it certainly helps um, with curing of the glue. Um, so the next one is from... I don't know if it's Tachik, Chick or Tashik, (laughs) underscore. So T-A-C-H-I-C-K, underscore. Um, I'm not sure how you pronounce your handle, but you're saying, my groupings are great for shooting with the silverback and the noctua, but how do I get better accuracy? I shoot in the same spot, and the groups tend to be on... Uh, but they won't be center often. Well, you're another person. I looked through your, uh, social media, couldn't really see any pictures of you shooting. I did see some pictures of shooting of groups on a target, but the ones you posted looked pretty darn good. Um, they looked like they were in the middle. So, um, you kind of contradict yourself. You say your groupings are great, um... But how do you get better? Um, So really, without seeing you, it's hard to say. But one thing that I can say is there's a lot of people out there that look a hundred times better just based off what you're reading and seeing and trying to mimic. Um, And there's people out there that I see that have like perfect looking form. They're shooting whatever release they own, they're shooting it good, their posture, their structure. Like when I'm looking at them, I'm like, man, this person should really be putting it together, making good shots. But then all of a sudden you see the groupings and then you start looking at like the patterns in their posts and you start to realize that these patterns are, and their groupings, they're just a classic person of having they're at the mercy of how their bow is set up and the actual accuracy of that combination because not all combinations just because you have a bow set up by the right person doesn't mean it's necessarily going to be accurate i've got a lot of photos of times where i've taken a bow that's perfectly set up and then shot it with three different types of arrows and the difference is pretty mind blowing between a setup that really likes a certain type of arrow arrow To pair with it versus an arrow that it doesn't like to pair with it. Same bow, same person. I've even done it where it's the same bow with a shooting machine. And it's completely different results. All because of what those arrows, how they match with that bow. Because sometimes they don't get along. Um, So I would say if you feel like you're making good shots and you feel like you're shooting good... Then one thing you may want to consider is, you know, just especially if you have a friend that has a slightly different spine arrow than yours, is try some different arrows through there. See if you get instant improvement. If you get instant improvement, then you're probably, it's a good sign that your arrow maybe isn't matched perfectly for your bow. Now, I I was worried about that myself. I had, you know, like I talked about earlier in the podcast, um, I've got a bow that looks like it's been run over somehow, and when I switched to the to the new Franken bow, um, that's going to be the code name for it. Uh, with Franken bow, because I went up that six and a half extra pounds in pull weight, I was worried about all of a sudden this thing not liking these arrows that just got done making and. Uh, but the reality is they actually get along really good, so I was thankful for that. Otherwise, I might have had to switch from that 6 millimeter axis maybe to um, a regular axis, like a 5 millimeter axis um, with a 260 spine or something. I was kind of worried about that, but I feel like I'm still okay. Um, so try some different arrows and see if that changes. It. If you can't try different arrows, then you could certainly change the poundage of your bow about 4 pounds high or low, and see if that, if you all of a sudden, now you're getting improvement and your groups change. If your groups change, um, then that's a perfect indicator that you might not have the best match uh, with your bow and your arrow. So hopefully that helps you, man. Um, Next question here is from, gosh, these are some terrible names today. Um, looks like, Carl Dementief, Carl Dementief, maybe, um, saying when preparing for bow hunting season, every day do you go out and shoot? How many arrows do you shoot or how many ar- arrows do you shoot or both? So I really focus my training on, um, quality over quantity. If I'm shooting good, then I shoot. If I'm shooting bad, I don't. For example, yesterday, I actually really wanted to shoot, but I'm just, um, I was ex- I'm extremely sore and tense right now um, because, I mean, my neck feels like I've got whiplash. I kind of went a little bit crazy um, in Winnipeg. It was, it was a cool, it was a cool place. I'm thankful. I met a lot of great people. I met some awesome people there, but that place is like, I think there's more hobos per like per city block than anywhere else I've been. And uh, Adam, who I was there with, he had to go to a meeting. So I ended up uh, having someone sneak me into a Snap Fitness, thanks to whoever let me in the front door. And... I just worked out for like two hours till he called and told me he was on his way back. And I just, there was new machines. So I was trying all these different machines. There was a machine that had this rope that was just on a circle. And you just like sat there and just pretended like you were climbing. And there was these um like tension, static tension uh, cables. So the harder you reefed on them, they like kind of breaked. So, braked in meaning like they would, there was like some type of a clutch system in them. So, I was doing all these exercises that aren't norm for me. So, I've got things hurting on me right now that aren't hurting any other time of the year except when I'm stuck in Winnipeg. And yesterday when I went out to shoot, it wasn't good. I was, I mean, I was spraying crap all over the place. So I just looked at um, Cullen and said, yeah, I'm not going to sit out here and deal with this. So I just packed it up, went in, and started working on arrows and broadheads, things like that. So I wasn't shooting good. I did make some shots. I got some repetition in, and I didn't shoot any amazingly. I never shot past I think 60 was the furthest I shot which normally on any given day I really like to shoot on at 80, I shoot at 100 a lot. Um, so the fact that I didn't shoot past 60 is pretty uncommon but you know I was just I wasn't shooting that great. I just built that bow. I there was a little bit of wind. I'd been traveling for a few days. So I just didn't feel like I was going to do anything positive by sitting out there and make myself shoot. So I didn't make myself shoot. Now today, you know, I'm looking outside right now, it's getting daylight and the wind isn't blowing. So I'm going to go out and I'm definitely going to put some arrows through. My intention is to shoot a lot today. I really want to get my marks and I want to break this bow in. Um, I had to restring it so it's got some new threads on it. So I need to break these in. So I might like to shoot. Um for an hour or two hours and, you know, put several hundred arrows through the bow. Um, but if I'm not shooting good, then I'm not going to stand out there and, and just keep reinforcing those things. I want to be able to shoot enough to where I have stamina for what I'm preparing for, which is right now hunting. I'm not preparing for a big tournament where I need to shoot 144 arrows for score. So, If I can go out there and shoot, I think if people can go out and shoot several dozen really good quality arrows every day, like don't be disappointed with that. That's really, really good. Just a couple rounds with good quality arrows, focusing on good form, pulling through, making good shots, being able to walk away saying, I'm shooting really good right now way that's way more beneficial than saying I shot for three hours a day having that positive um picture of how well you are shooting that's really in the name of the game um <laughs> Dan the fitness man is asking Andy Stump this is off um I'm still going through questions from when Andy and I did a podcast um Dan, the fitness man, is asking you, Andy, uh, why did you try to kill his liver in 2007 at the CrossFit L2 certification in Santa Cruz? And he's got a sick face. (laughs) Well, Andy's good at killing people's liver. Like, he has two ways to do it. A fast way, that's probably with a bullet or a knife, And he has a slow way, which, unfortunately, his friends learn the slow way, and that's by a slow, miserable alcohol poisoning. (laughs) I've been there, Dan. It's not the best way to go. I almost would rather take the knife. At least the next morning, I probably would have said, could I just take the knife? But, uh, all right, next way. Next thing is um, from... Uh, Matt, it's, I don't know if it's Matt Rape or Matt Trape. So either one. Uh, for the last two 3D seasons, I've had issues in the beginning of the season with mostly my mental game and a little bit of shooting. It's basically taken me all season to get back to where I feel like I'm shooting at my best. How would you suggest staying on top of the mental side of the game during the hunting season. So that's kind of it's not complex, I guess, but I'm just sitting here thinking because I don't prep for any of these questions. I think there's a lot of different ways to skin a cat, right? So and if you're if you're a cat lady, a real cat lady, and you're upset by me talking about skinning a cat, then it's a figure of speech. Um, I did have to skin a mountain lion. And mountain lions are really tasty too, by the way. Uh, really good. But anyway, you know, I really feel like your mental game is strong when you are constantly, you know, if you're... If you're confident, then your mental game is strong. If you're not confident, then your mental game is obviously going to be weak and confidence comes from from I think confidence comes from consistency. And if you're inconsistent, then I think you you're truthful to yourself deep down and that's where a lot of people start to like they feel insecure. Once they because they know what the truth is, so they have these insecurities deep down, and the insecurities start to manifest into um, posturing or you know, bullshitting yourself, all that stuff, um, and that ends up you know, taking a long time to get over. Some people never do it, just manifests and gets worse and worse and worse. But if you're Confident and you're consistent, you're going to be able to be good continually, you know, rather than have highs and have lows. And a lot of that comes from really being focused on task, being task driven more so than ego driven. So you have task, you have ego. There's two different types of mentalities out there. This goes for all athletes um, in all sports. So task driven people, um, myself, I would put myself in that category. I'm really focused on goals, setting goals and picking specific things that I know that I want to work on and I want to improve on. Um, for me, a lot of times that's making whatever is weakest in my, you know, my weakest part of my game. I want to make my strongest. That's normally one of my top goals. Um, So being able to focus on the task, and task could include um, telling yourself, okay, I wanna, you know, all I wanna do is execute good shots this tournament. That could be a task. Another task could be, you know, I wanna I wanna shoot the silverback for a full tournament for the first time. Another task could be, you know, all day, I'm, you know, I'm not even gonna look at the scorecard. I don't want to worry about the score. I'm gonna go out and execute shots, let the cards fall where they where they may, and at the end of the day, I'm going to figure out where they fell. The flip side of that is the ego side is, you know, you want a certain score. You want to know how so-and-so's doing. You want to know what where you placed. Um, you know, if you didn't make the podium, you feel like it's not worth it, or if you went on a hunt and didn't get, you know, you didn't shoot the best one, you know, didn't shoot the biggest buck, well, you know, it sucks, his is bigger than mine, like all those types of things go more towards the ego side, and confidence, the problem, the problem with the ego-driven athlete is their performance, their peak performance rides on the position of their ego. So if their ego gets hurt or if they start to question themselves, um, then those people normally really tend to underperform and they have these massive slumps where they dive. They can be on cloud nine and they can be unstoppable. But then all of a sudden, once they get that little disruption or they have that first slump, it's almost like at that point, that slump, because... It impacts the ego. It's an instant nosedive, and a slump turns almost into a depression, a depressing performance, and just something where you're almost having to, as a coach, you're just having to continually pump these people up and stroke them in order to just keep them act, keep them in the game because, you know, mentally they just they break because they've had their they, they've had their ego dented. Whereas the task-driven athlete, many times, um, will be the most consistent for a longer period of time because they just focus on being happy with technique, consistency, they're really focused on um, setting goals and going out and just um, initiating a game plan and being completely happy coming home. And checking all the boxes off of that game plan, even if the plan didn't win, the fact that they went out, had a plan, and checked all those things off, they're they're super content with. Okay, you know, we stuck to the plan, we did exactly what we thought, but um, we didn't win. But we can make some easy adjustments, and we'll go out with a new plan of attack. And if we check all those boxes off with this new plan, we should be able to do good. That sort of thing is a way better mentality. And with hunting season, you know, really focusing on, uh, you know, focusing on good shots uh, during the hunting season, and then utilizing your hunting season to do some practicing. You know, don't take the entire hunting season off from your tournament stuff. Um, one of the things that I didn't like about being a target archer was the fact that they started having indoor tournaments at the end of November. And what I didn't like about that was that meant that I really had to start utilizing like several hours in November for practicing indoor archery, which I thought that was kind of miserable. Um, but the reality is I actually was able to still, um, I could hunt, I couldn't perform I didn't perform that well in a lot of those early uh tournaments because honestly, deep down, I knew I wasn't preparing at the level that I do once I'm in stride with the season um, but because I was setting goals, my goals wouldn't be to expect myself to be at level ten. At the first indoor event of the year, at the end of November, I would almost set a goal of, okay, let's at least put some time into getting an indoor bow ready in the month of November. Um, at least pull it back every day, <laughs> you know. At least look at it. Don't just shoot your hunting bow. Um, and then I, you know, I'd go to that first tournament and just say, okay, this first tournament. Let's just focus on getting these cobwebs blown out. You know, I wouldn't go there and be upset with myself because I didn't win the tournament or even if I went there and shot, you know. Normally, I'd shoot probably about 10 points below, you know, below my norm for, like, indoor, like, Fita world archery type things with inner 10 scoring. Um, You know, I'd shoot in the 580s, 585, 588. But... I didn't let it upset me. I would just know that come January, when it wasn't hunting season, and my mind and my brain was focused and functional on indoor target archery, then at that time those scores would go up, you know, into the 595s and and normally average somewhere in that position. So, um, but because I was task driven, I was focused on setting those goals, and and I was content with consistently ramping up to uh, my performance level so recognize that about yourself don't be upset with yourself just because it may take you a little while maybe it's because you enjoy hunting and you take hunting season off to like have your what you like to do um, so you know in that case uh, you know I think you should just be happy with with what you're doing. If you wanna, if you want to be better faster, then you're gonna have to commit more time. Almost starting next month, or starting the month, you know, by October, you might have to start ramping it up and putting a lot more preparation in uh, before uh, before you get too far into that season. I was always that way, if I'm honest with you. Um, I never expected myself to perform well earlier in the year, and honestly, I ne- I didn't perform that well right prior to hunting seasons too. Mentally, um, I remember most of the the last tournaments of the year, which unfortunately were always World Championships. I would go there, and I would literally in the back of my mind be thinking, okay right now i could be on a water hole in montana sitting for antelope but i'm i'm like across the ocean over here shooting arrows for you know whatever some check and it wasn't mentally it wasn't that good so um anyway we're going to i'm going to wrap up this podcast and uh, hopefully you all have something to, uh, to listen to this weekend and appreciate everyone so much. Thanks for all the support, all that good stuff. And, uh, I'm going to get off this podcast and chat to a few of my Instagram people that are still watching live right now. So we'll talk at you later. Thanks everybody. Knock on. Be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock-on lifestyle clothing, knockonarchery.com.